Hello and welcome to this arena special with writer Claire Keegan live from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunlera. What a nice reception that is for Claire, whose titles may be modest in length, but there's no doubt that the novels and short stories pack such an emotional punch that they cause most readers to go back straight away and read the work again. In the Davy Burns award-winning Foster from 2010, a young girl is sent to live with a childless couple while her mother is giving birth. In this stranger's house, the young girl finds affection she has never known, and she blossoms during an Irish summer. In small things like these from 2021, coal merchant Bill Furlong is facing his busiest season in the build-up to Christmas, but in a coal shed attached to, the mag to a Magdalen laundry, he has an encounter that causes him to make an heroic, perhaps foolish, decision. The book won the Orwell Prize for Political Fiction and was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. And now, in so late in the day, Cahill is finishing a seemingly ordinary day's work a Friday, getting ready to take the bus home. But his mind is agitated by thoughts of Sabina, the woman he could be going home to if things had turned out differently. There are also two award-winning and critically acclaimed short story collections, Antarctica from 1999, Walk the Blue Fields from 2010 and plenty of material in all of them to whet the appetite for tonight's conversation. Please welcome Claire Keegan. Claire, one of the things that really struck me as I've been reading over the past couple of weeks, really, across the titles is a lot of the time this really strong sense of where exactly I am, a very strong sense of place, and I wondered about your own place in the beginning of your life, essentially, growing up on a farm down in, in, in and around the Wexford Wicklow area. How important, how formative was that to the writer you are today? I'm not sure because I don't think you can measure it. It's such a part of your life. It's just what you breathe and see. But I really did like farming and I liked the animals in the place and the next book I'm I'm hoping to finish will, will be set there, or the next novel I'm hoping to finish will, will be set there. But we had, you know, we had, we had cattle and sheep mostly. My brother had horses and my mother used to pluck turkeys and send them on the train to Christmas, you know, from Tullow at Christmas time. And there were ducks and, you know, there was always dogs and cats around. So I, I liked all of that very much and I, I pretty much like anything with four legs. <laughs> and the place itself we we'd looked out over Mount Leinster it was an old place, we lived up the lane and um, I'll have to say that um, the place itself uh, was something that was very dear to me is it, is it, in terms of pictures, is it ensconced in your mind in any way? very much so, very much so I think I, I need to write this novel set there because I want to see those pictures and, and have them have them put down on paper and maybe try and make some sense out of them and, and form some kind of narrative around those pictures, even the, the sound of the milk churn or the smell of the cow for the house or the sound of the gate as it closed on a frosty morning. All of those things seem uh, like things I need to play with on Sound. the page. And it sounds like the novel we're all going to want to read when, when you get there with it. Was it a bookish place? Oh, no, not at all. My mother had a full and plenty cookery book. <laughs> not that she didn't read. She was a very good reader. We just didn't have books. Um, there were... My mother and father used to get the Sunday paper and the weekly paper. And then there was a, an old Bible nobody read with all of these wonderful plates with masterpieces in them. And I used to go down to the parlour and take that out and look at them. And they used to frighten me, you know, Lazarus and... John the Baptist's head on a plate and all of those things and, and Jesus nailed to a cross, all of those things used to scare me but I, I, I really liked looking at them but not for long. Um, but we, my, Every now and then there'd be a, a Walter Mackin. My aunt used to have a Milton Boone every now and then and leave it there but uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a bookish household. And the Mills and Boone's excesses, clearly you got them out of your system early. Well, you know, they say the Mills and Boone. I, I said idly 
uh, it was a cheap remark that I said to a wonderful bookseller um, some years ago about um, a Mills and Boone, and he said, well, you know, those Mills and Boone books are really well edited. And I took a Mills and Boone home from his secondhand bookshop, and he was absolutely right. So you've got to be careful what you criticize. <laughs> so you read them and learned something about brevity. Oh, I'm not sure that I did. <laughs> no, I'm not sure that I, I, I did learn my brevity there. Yeah, I think possibly the brevity are the beginnings of the writer you became, really started at the age of 17. And the way you describe growing up in Wexford, it sounds as if it, was, it had this certainly idyllic quality to it. There may have been other qualities there too, but it was when you moved to America at the age of 17. How did that come about that you, that you moved to New Orleans and that you studied there? I got a summer job when I was 16, working in a house outside of Gorey cooking for a group of Americans. And uh, when I was finished and when they were leaving, they asked if I would like to come over and live with them when I was finished my leaving cert, and I did, and that's how, that's how that happened. That's an extraordinary, or was it an extraordinary thing? Did it feel like an extraordinary thing for somebody to ask you, you know, do you want to come over with us? And they were going to finance your education as well. Incredible kindness. Well, I also earned my education. I, I wasn't studying and, and lying back during mm. the time uh, when I wasn't studying. Um, although it's presented in that way, I know um, that is not the case. I, I actually earned my, my degrees. But I, I suppose it was. I suppose it was extraordinary. Uh, yes, and and it was a, a huge change for me to go from being on a farm and not ever really. I don't think I was had ever been on an escalator to get on planes and go to a place where it didn't get cold at night. That was very odd. <laughs> where it was really warm at night. In fact, I'm sure in, in New Orleans a lot of the time. And the study that that happened there. How important was that to the, because I think that was where you really started to read, which is the essential tool for any writer, isn't it? It certainly is. I, I thought it was just great to have a library card. And you could go in and pick out as many books as you wanted, I think, or as many books as you could want in a week, and read them all or not read them, and, and uh, take them all back and get more. So for me, it, was, it really was wealth. Mm. That was the wealth rather than anything yeah. else. And, and who, who were the writers then who began to speak to you at that point? I remember going up, we used to go to the farm in Mississippi on weekends sometimes. And I remember reading Steinbeck up there and Emily Dickinson. I didn't know Elizabeth Bishop then, I didn't read her poetry, but I, I read uh, James Baldwin and Richard Wright um, and Eudora Welty and Flannery O'Connor's stories. Tony Morrison, I read a lot of John Cheever and Doris Lessing at that time, and some Borges. And then I read a lot of poetry. I would have read Sylvia Plath and uh, Ted Hughes, Philip Larkin, uh, Betjeman, oh, so many of the American poets, and Auden also. And I read Chaucer. I just loved Chaucer. I thought he was delightful, and we had a wonderful teacher for the Middle Ages literature. And... Uh, I had a wonderful teacher there called, her name is Mary McKay, and she comes over and teaches my own students here for me still, and is doing so at the moment online. Um, so I was, I, was really, I was really so lucky to find so many wonderful teachers. Also, there was Renaissance poetry and John Donne. I just loved John Donne. I thought he was great sport altogether. And he had a flea, you know, who would, who would bite two lovers and mix their blood, and that's how they'd fall in love, and I thought that was great sport. <laughs> I'm interested in the number of poets that you've mentioned in, in that list there as well, because I'm, I'm trying to get to the point at which distillation, if that's the correct word for what you do in your, in your writing, uh, uh, because poetry has that distilled aspect to it. I'm wondering at what point writing became a possibility for you, and then that very distilled uh, economic writing that you, give, that you present to us. I'm not sure that I ever felt that it had become a possibility. I just wandered into this and it stuck and, and I kept doing it and here I am and I became more interested in it, especially the more I taught, the more interested I, I became. Uh, but I, I, when I came back from New Orleans, I couldn't find a job. 
and I applied for 300 jobs. I got 300 rejection letters. I was living happily and unhappily with my mother in Tullow, and then I got a FOSS course and started teaching in Clondalkin, um, and then in, in Tala, uh, teaching creative writing. And I, I just started writing short stories. And then I got a collection together and met David Marcus, who published them, uh, with um, Curtis Brown. The, he was a, a literary scout then for the agency. And Faber published them and, and have published everything I've finished ever, ever since. So you got your rejection letters out of the way early? I, uh, I, not for, not yeah, for published I, material, I just, not for writing. I've got a great skin for rejection. Yeah, people get really upset by it, I know, but I'm not one of them. <laughs> it's a good tool for a writer to have at her, his or her disposal. I brought up kindness earlier on. You quite rightly corrected the, the version of the story that I had in my head, which is kind of sometimes what happens with stories. We have versions of them in our head. I think it is safe to say that in terms of foster, sorry, in terms of small things like these, kindness is at the heart. It's one of the things at the heart of that novel. I, I like to think it is. I think Furlong is a decent man and was loved when he was a child. Even though his mother died when he was young, he was loved for, for most of his childhood and, and for all of his childhood by different people. I don't know that you need to be loved by people who are related to you. It's, it's the people who are around you. Um, and so I, I like to think that um, he is presented in that way, believably, and, and is sustained as a kind man. And of course, he, he was brought up effectively. His mother was a single mother and it, or an unmarried. She was an unmarried mother when she was pregnant. Normally, that would be a disaster at this period in time in the 1980s. Even at that point, it was a disaster for a young Irish woman. But a, a Protestant woman looks after her. Kindness again here. Indeed, I think she... But it, it, isn't, um, it isn't a huge thing to do, you know? And I think that's what he was taught perhaps when he was young that it's as easy to be kind as to be unkind sometimes. She still did her work, his mother, in the place. It didn't prevent, but um, having said that, Mrs. Wilson was in a privileged position because she was living down in the big house and had an independent income. But a bit like your own situation in the teenage years, she earned her, she earned her keep there too. It wasn't a charity. Yeah, she was working for the for the for the living and the, the, the living that she was being given. However, the, the the kind of the alertness of Furlong to the difficulties of others is is one of the things that really strikes me uh, across small things like these. Maybe you'd read a section of it. it's from quite early in the novel, isn't it, uh, where he's he's coming back and we, we need the the setting here is Christmas. He's coming back from I think he has been to the up to the the local convent at this stage, uh, and he's coming back and having a conversation with his wife about something he has seen. So will you read that section from Small Things Like These for us, and we'll uh, discuss it a little bit afterwards. <clears throat> Sometimes for long, seeing the girls going through the small things which needed to be done genuflecting in the chapel or thanking a shopkeeper for the change, felt a deep, private joy that these children were his own. Aren't we the lucky ones? He remarked to Eileen in bed one night. There's many out there badly off. We are, surely. Not that we've much, he said, but still. Eileen's hand slowly pushed a crease out of the bedspread. Did something happen? It took him a moment to answer. Mick Sinnott's little chap was out in the road again today, foraging for sticks. I suppose you stopped. Wasn't it spilling rain? I pulled over and offered him a lift and gave him what little bit of change was loose in my pocket. I dare say. You'd think it was a hundred pound I'd given him. You know, some of these bring the hardship on themselves. Tis not the child's doing, surely. Sinnott was stocious at the phone box on Tuesday. The poor man, Furlong said. Whatever ails him. Drink is what ails him. 
If he'd any regard for his children, he'd not be going round like that. He'd pull himself out of it. Maybe the man isn't able. I suppose she reached over and sighed, turned the light out. Always there's one that has to pull the short straw. Some nights for long lay there with Eileen, going over small things like these. Other times after a day of heavy lifting or being delayed by a puncture and getting soaked out on the road, he'd come home and eat his fill and fall into bed early. Then wake in the night, sensing Eileen heavy in sleep at his side. And there he'd lie, with his mind going round in circles, agitating before finally he'd have to go down and put the kettle on for tea. He'd stand at the window then with the cup in his hand, looking down at the streets and what he could see of the river at the little bits and pieces of goings-on, stray dogs out foraging for scraps in the bins, chipper bags and empty cans being rolled and blown roughly about by the driving wind and rain, stragglers from the pubs stumbling home. Sometimes these stumbling men sang a little, Other times, Furlong would hear a sharp, hot whistle and laughter which made him tense. He imagined his girls getting big and growing up, going out into that world of men. Already he'd seen men's eyes following his girls, but some part of his mind was often tense. He could not say why. Claire Keegan reading from her novel Small Things Like These. There was much talk at the time, you know, there's a, there's a big Magdalene's uh, Laundry's aspect to the story. There was much talk about that part of the novel at the time. And, of course, it won the George Orwell Prize for political fiction. How political a novel do you think it is, Claire? I'm the wrong person to ask. I really am. I don't, I don't measure my work that way. I don't analyse my work. I'm quite good at analysing other, other people's works when I'm, when I'm teaching my fiction writing courses, but I don't apply it to my own. And I, I anyway, in any case, I don't, I don't think it should be um, measurable, and I didn't see it as a political act when I wrote it. I have a degree in political science, mm. actually. And I just trust that my um, thoughtfulness and my politics will come out in my work. And I... I I just, it's an act of trust that those things will come out, but I'm not trying to um, have any gavel, um, or I'm, I'm really not uh, interested in telling people how to think, but I'm deeply interested in thoroughly imagining another life and putting it on a page in a way that is aesthetically pleasing to a reader of stories. And so story is the motivating force the whole time? All the time. Well, we talk more stories here live from the Pavilion Theatre after this break. And welcome back to the Pavilion Theatre and this arena public interview with Claire Keegan. So late in the day is the latest book, and we will be talking about that shortly. But also on stage with us this evening is our musical act, who brings with her a wealth of tradition as she is the first signing of the relaunched Clado record. She is Nave Burry, and she is going to perform two songs for us this evening. The first is Beehive, which Nave describes as a dreamy, lilting tune that is about the overlapping of myth, folk, wisdom, and science. So a lot going to be packed into this four minutes and 40 seconds. Beehive, Neve Berry on vocals and guitar, and an Angus McCauley on cello.
conversation with the scientist I'm shaming. They were saying the same things, using different words. One man's rainbow is another spirit from a different world. One man's soul is an oyster. shook hands and parted and went their separate ways but not before calculating how much time we have left in days and I had a dream there was gathered everyone I've ever met in one room happy people those I haven't yet they all shuffled into place and every all of place that looked just like my face and then the pieces and rearranged like a shaking snow globe in a weather guard's brain you've got colors in your feathers I don't even know the name of and I have a long list of letters I should be ashamed of your mind is like a beehive so complex and so sweet chaotic and so Berry on vocals and guitar, Angus McAuley on cello, and a song called Beehive. Um, Claire Keegan is with me uh, at the launch of her latest publication, So Late in the Day. It, 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 songs can economically tell stories for sure, can't they, Claire? Of course, yeah. Uh, I suppose this, it, that kind of economy, which I have mentioned within your work before, you mentioned, you've, you've referred to small things like these uh, as a novel efficiently told and to foster as a long, short story. What's the difference there? Oh God, how long have you got? Um, <laughs> I think a short story begins after what happens happens. And a novel begins before what happens happens. Does that make any sense? Does, so the novel has to tell us everything that happens then, does it? I think a short story can begin in the third act and a novel cannot. So at the beginning of Foster then, a lot has happened before this little girl is going to be brought to this family, the Kinsellas, to be looked after for the summer. Yes, but it's also, it's also, fresh, it's also fresh for her. Um, and and it, does, it does all come around. But I really don't mind. I'm not particular over what people call them. If, if people want to um, call them stories or not call them stories and call them no a novella, or I, I really don't mind. I think uh, something just is what it is. It, it turns out to be what it is, and, and what it's called is, is neither here nor there. And are you aware of what it is at the time of writing, or are you just working through to... to work out what it is. I'm just trying to find the perfect length for what it is and I don't mind what length it turns out to be. And if these books needed to be ten times the length they are, I, uh, that's the job I would have had mm. to make them so. I want you to read the 
opening of Foster? Because it, it, I think it tells us, tells us a couple of things that I'd really like to hear your thoughts on. Uh, but here we are in the third act, I think we can say then, of this story, the opening of Foster from Claire Keegan. Early on a Sunday, after first mass in Clonigal, my father, instead of taking me home, drives deep into Wexford towards the coast, where my mother's people came from. It is a hot day, bright, with patches of shade and greenish sudden light along the road. We pass through the village of Shalala, where my father lost our red shorthorn in a game of 45, and on past the mart in Carnew where the man who won the heifer sold her shortly afterwards. My father throws his hat on the passenger seat, winds down the window and smokes. I shake the plaits out of my hair and lie flat on the back seat, looking up through the rear window. In places there's a bare blue sky. In places the blue is chalked over with clouds, but mostly it's a heady mixture of sky and trees scratched over by ESB wires, across which every now and then small brownish flocks of vanishing birds race. Striking in many ways that opening to foster care to, to my ears at, at any rate, not least of which is one of the challenges I would have thought with this book is it is told to us, the story is told to us by the little girl, uh, finding that voice and how important was the present tense because she's speaking to us as she tells us everything as it happens. How important was that in finding her voice? It was a really important part of the story because she doesn't know what's going on. She has no hindsight and doesn't know when she'll be going home or if she'll be going home at the end of the summer. So it was really important uh, that it, it be written in, <clears throat> in the present tense, which is, which is conducive to that, to that emotion of, of really not knowing what's going on. Now, as the story progresses, we, we, you know, she has a, a lovely summer with this, uh, cousins of her mother's essentially, and a wonderful relationship grows between the three of them and all sorts of things, uh, and, and emotions occur within that. But we get a sense in that opening, in that opening section, just with, we passed through the village of Shalala where my father lost our red shorthorn in a game of 45. I mean, you tell us a whole story in that half sentence. <laughs> I like red shorthorns. <laughs> <laughs> I was admiring red, I came up here through Carlo and I was thinking on the way up, I have an old Jeep and I was thinking, God, there's lovely red shorthorns in Carlo when I was think, coming up here, but I never thought, I never put it uh, with the story that I've, with the, the opening of Foster. Um, however, if you like them so much, were you annoyed or can you be annoyed at the father? For Clearly, we, we get a sense that the father of the young girl here, that all is not well in that familial situation. Well, I think all is never well in a story. A story is a, a, story is a record of human upsets. And if, if something isn't, isn't going wrong, or there isn't tension or loss, um, it, it, isn't it isn't story. Um, there may be periods of that, or it may seem to be turning that way for a while, but there's little relief from it, especially in a short piece. And so it is the same, uh, the same in, in Foster, with, with the father having a, a gambling, uh, problem and, and a drinking problem, and I, I gave those um, problems to him. Actually, one of my readers came up to me one time. It wasn't here in Ireland, strangely enough. It was uh, somebody in, um, uh, I think it was Canada, and, and said they were so sorry for me that my father was such an alcoholic. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's great, the book is working, because <laughs> my mother said she never saw my father drunk only once which was the day Wexford won the All-Ireland, <laughs> the day after Wexford won the All-Ireland, and they came back to Gorey, and that was the same day I was born in Gorey Hospital, and she said they were all jumping up and down on the window ledge, and my father came in half-stocious because, because of the game. So uh, I thought that was, that was a good sign that, that it was working. 
Yeah, and clearly gets rid of any autobiographical questions in and around this and I think other stories as well. But you've often referred to the, or you have referred in the past to this story as the luck, your luckiest story, I think. I mean, it won the Davy Byrne Award, it was adapted into an Oscar-nominated film, was chosen for the Leaving Certificate curriculum. Um, is it still one of the big, is it still the luckiest story for you? I don't know. I think all of my work has been extraordinarily fortunate in many ways and not least not least because of the wonderful readers it has found, many of whom have written to me. And it's across, it's, there's not one, is there any one story that's more letters than the other? Which of your children do you love of, best? I think most of the letters came from, from sm for small things like these simply because it touched so many, many people and to do with the, with the Magdalene laundries and the misogyny in the Catholic Church um, and especially after Catherine Corliss and what she discovered, I think that um, touched a great many people. So most of the letters did, did come after that book was published. And it'll be interesting, excuse me, I know there's a film on the way. It'll be interesting to see what effect that has on the story as well. However, I do want to get to the new book, but I want to get a second piece of music in as well. So Neve uh, Berry is going to come back on stage for us now, along with Angus McCauley, and she's going to give us her latest, her current single, which is called Discovery. Discovery tastes flesh white and sweet. Oh, treated like a newborn baby. Tired and confused, always switched on. Barely human, feeling used. Oh, let go, throw your heart out. Breathe out, breathe in life. Launch and hold on tight 
Neve Berry with her new single, Discover. It's out on Clada Records. If you want to see Neve live, she can be heard at the Fame Dublin session the night before Larry got stretched, which takes place in the Cobblestones pub, of course, in Smithfield on the last Sunday of every month. Back with Claire Keegan and her new story, So Late in the Day, after this break. And welcome back to the Pavilion Theatre and this Arena Public interview with Claire Keegan. So Late in the Day is your latest book, Claire. It follows Cahill, uh, a kind of a civil servant type of guy, clock watching it has to be said, certainly uh, in the early part of the story here. And he's, there's something troubling him. There's a sense of tension from the, from the very start here. How did this story come about? How did it come about? I was... Uh, lecturing, I was given a talk from my students on uh, fiction writing, and I was talking about how I was trying to explain the difference between tension and drama, and I'm pro-tension and anti-drama. I try to play down the drama as much as I can and and use the tension, because people get tense when they can lose or feel they may lose something. And that's that's something every reader likes to read. So one of my students said, well, can you give me an example? Can you give us an example of the difference between drama and tension? And I said, well, I'll try. And I, I wrote this, drew up this kind of narrative on the board about a, a fellow who gets out of work on a Friday evening and waits for the bus. And I said, well, is there anything wrong with that? And they said, well, no, not really. I said, well, there isn't. I'm just telling you, there isn't anything wrong with that. <laughs> <clears throat> because we've got a when, where, and who, which is a good start to a story. And... Uh, and uh, he goes home, and um, but he takes the bus home, and he sits too close to a woman on the bus, and it just kind of generated some kind of tension. So I had a moment of tension there, and then he went home, and the cat was missing, and there was a moment of tension there, and, and then he goes on, and uh, and he sits down with his macaroni and cheese out of the freezer, and sits watching a documentary on Lady Diana, and. He doesn't know why he's doing that, because he's never held any interest whatsoever in the royal family, and he just can't understand this. So I can't understand this, of course, too, why I generated a piece of tension out of that. And then I said, well, what if we call this story Wedding Day? And this was the day when this man was supposed to have been married. Did you and hear instead, how quiet they went when you said that? And he's... And so... That changes and puts a different colour on everything that happened in the day. Also, he's so tight, he doesn't give up on, he still goes into work. You know, he's a dull civil servant and deeply dishonest. And uh, he's, he's not going to miss the day's work, you know, and he goes, goes into work and takes the bus home. So um, he, it's, it's funny, but you can make a story out of anything if there's tension in it. There certainly is tension, and I, I really did notice how the audience, when you said, what if it was, if it was a wedding day? And I was like, oh, we, we want to find out more about that. And maybe we can go back to the day of the engagement in the, in the reading that you're going to do. So he, he, he um, has fiancéed a young... She's a French woman, isn't she, called Sabina? She is. And the section that you're going to An read... An Irish woman might have married him. <laughs> That's a whole different story. <laughs> well, let us go over and, and see how many Irish women would be attracted to this man uh, on, the, on, the day of, on the day of your engagement. Imagine this bio <laughs> outside the shop with you. Another two months passed before she found an engagement ring to suit her at a fancy jeweler's off Grafton Street, an antique with one diamond set on a red gold band, but it was loose on her finger and had to be resized. When they had gone back to collect it some weeks later, on a Friday evening, an additional charge of 128 euros plus VAT was added for the resizing. Cahill had taken her outside to the street then, saying they should refuse to pay this extra charge. But she'd insisted that they'd been told of the additional cost and refused to say she had ever believed otherwise. Do you think I'm made of money? He'd said, 
and immediately felt the long shadow of his father's language crossing over his life on what should have been a good day, if not one of his happiest. She had stared at him and was about to turn and walk, but Cahill backed down and had apologised. Please wait, he pleaded. I didn't mean it. I just didn't want to be taken advantage of, is all. I got it all wrong. He'd gone back into the shop then, and with some difficulty, as his hands weren't steady, had prized the MasterCard from his wallet. <laughs> the jeweller, a white-haired man with gold-rimmed glasses, placed the ring into a little domed box and handed him the card reader. You know this item is non-refundable now, that it's custom-made and cannot be returned? There'll be no need for anything like that, Cahill said. The jeweller pressed his lips together as though resisting an urge to say something more. But when the transaction was approved, he simply handed Cahill the receipt and the little box, which weighed no more than a box of matches. It really is an, an extraordinary scene that he would start thinking about the 128 euro plus VAT. And it may not be that extraordinary. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> it may be an ordinary thing to do. So, because I'm interested in the line, in the midst of that reading, do you think I'm made of money, he said, which sounds like the meanest line in the world, and then and immediately felt the long shadow of his father's language crossing over his life. That's, that's the kind of, is that the mitigating situation? Because on, on the surface of it, he sounds like a tight so-and-so misogynistic lad who doesn't want to spend money on an engagement ring for the woman he loves. Is there, is there some sort of mitigation in there? In what sense do you mean? Th that's the fact that he's remembering something about his father, his father's language and do you think I'm made of money is a fairly harsh line. It, it, are, are, you, are you letting him off with something because of his father's behaviour in the past? Well, I don't feel I am as an author. I don't feel I'm letting him, him off with anything. But I do feel that there are moments in our lives when we realise we're behaving the way our parents have behaved. And that we are mimicking something, hopefully, mimicking something which is outdated and inappropriate, especially in misogynistic Ireland. Um, and also, I suppose, uh, the part of me that's, uh, that's delighted with this story is that I really feel that he's becoming uh, so outdated that no woman will be attracted to him and he won't be able to reproduce. And, <laughs> and wouldn't it be wonderful if the misogynists were left unable to reproduce in this country. So it's payback. <laughs> but, but it is, I mean, he, he is attending, or there's mention of the Vermeer exhibition at one point along the way here, so I went off checking up my, my dates today. 2017, uh, or thereabouts, I'm guessing, is the, the moment of the setting of this, of this story. Is it just Cahill, please tell me it is, or do you think that kind of misogynistic attitude, I mean, he talks at another stage about cabbages being three euro, four euro in, a, in, a, in a, an organic market, and at another point about the six euro that Sabina spends on cherries, even though he likes the food. But is, how, how representative is Cahill in that respect? Well, I don't know. I haven't dated that many men. I can't give you a, I can't a, give a, you a slice of, of, uh, of what that what that uh, behaviour is like, but I don't, I don't think it's hugely unusual. I don't think it's deeply unusual for somebody to, um, to pronounce love and, um, and not produce the money. And we, 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 I, get, I come back to that line from his father, and I'm wondering to what extent is, is it a societal type of misogyny that we're talking about here, rather than personal misogyny, or is that letting him off the hook as well? I think misogyny comes down to the individual. 
and how we behave is is uh, part of what is social, but it is down to us. I don't know. I don't know that uh, we can we can say, well, I'm just like everybody else, therefore I'm all right. If you're not all right in your behaviour and how you treat somebody and how you treat a woman, you're just not all right. I, I don't really distinguish one from the other. Where is the misogyny coming from? Is I mean, you, you talk about the situation in his family um, earlier on. There are scenes there. Is the family a, a, essentially a misogynistic structure? Yes, I think so, very much so. I think it came down, in, in Carl's case, I think it came down from a jeering uh, father. Um, and and uh, he wasn't corrected and he was spoiled and not taught how to respect women and therefore can't be successful in his, in his, in his relationships and cannot give. I've just taught the barracks on two different courses, John McGahern's first novel, first published novel, I should say. And I was really interested in something. I had forgotten the book. I hadn't read it in years. And I, I was delighted by um, just how strong it is. I had forgotten or, or hadn't realized what a wonderful novel it is, really, until recently. And one of the, the things he, he talks about is, is, you know, that the, at the heart of miserliness uh, there is no love you know there 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 is a, a fear an unnatural fear uh, which is loveless and it's interesting to to see misogyny as a lack of generosity it's interesting i think to propose misogyny as not being able to give just being unable to give getting no pleasure out of that only taking is what makes you feel bigger. And how small do you have to be if that is your emotional state? So, so that was interesting for me to kind of discover that about meanness and, and what that is. I, I, I'm coming back to this idea of Kahal. If, if he is, if, that sounds like the person who is misogynistic is in some ways the victim of a loveless situation or a loveless family. Are they not responsible for their own actions as well? Oh yes, I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, certainly not saying that, I'm just trying to respond rather than, than say it's all right. Mm. Um, but I, I think that that's where it comes from. I think it comes from not being able, not being able to give, not having that confidence. But he's deeply dishonest as well, so he can't fix himself. If, uh, if he's, and this is just his version, mm. it's all told in his point of view, and he is admitting, making slight admissions to some things, so you know it's a great deal more than he's actually admitting to. Um, so he's, he's, um, he's just in a bind with himself, and his dishonesty makes it impossible for him to get out of it, I think. Well, the end of the story has incredibly violent language within it, Use, uses of words, the C word is used in there, and the way that Cahill describes the women in and around his, his life circle is frankly appalling. How difficult is it, you thought long and hard, I'm guessing, about the words you, he uses to describe there and, and the violence of those words. How difficult was it to choose them? Yes. No, it was very easy to choose them because I knew exactly what he'd say. <laughs> I knew exactly what he'd say. That was not difficult to imagine. And did, did, did he disappoint you? Do you care about him? Or, or do, is oh, that I a, care very much about all my characters. They interest me. Um, I, I, certainly, I certainly wouldn't recommend him, you know, as a... <laughs> On a, on a dating website <laughs> or, or anything like that, you, you give him the thumbs down, but other, otherwise, uh, otherwise, I mean, as a, as a human being, he's, he's really interesting. His failures, are, his failures are interesting. His dishonesty is interesting to me. His he miserliness is interesting to me. He also is one of the two-legged people in, in your book. I will finish up with a four-legged uh, uh, being. 
you have said that your ambition to start a, Brum a Brumby is oh, yeah. very much to the fore. Maybe explain what a br starting a Brumby oh, is. Oh, I've to already us. started a Brumby. It's a oh, it's great. Well, God, we're we're almost out of time now. We are out of time. It's an Australian Mustang. It's a wild it's a wild horse, and I went to Queensland this year and started a Brumby, and I'm going back next year to start another one. So. Um, that's the obsession with the four-legged thing that you're referring to, um, Sean. <laughs> Taming a wild horse, is it anything like writing? It is, very much so. But that's a, another day's talk. <laughs> <laughs> Claire, an absolute pleasure. Claire Keegan, and So Late in the Day is Claire's latest book. It's published by Faber, and that is all from this special show from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary. Thank you to Claire, and as I say, so Late in the Day is the name of that book, which will be on sale, I believe, in the foyer afterwards this evening. Thanks, too, to our musical act, Nave Berry and Angus McAuley on cello. Thank you to all the team here in the Pavilion in Dunleary and to Declan Heaney of Faber. On sound tonight, Pather Carney and Ruth Kennington here in, in, uh, the, in the Pavilion and Damien Chanel back at base. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Paula Shields and Declan Burke were the researchers and the programme was produced by Kay Sheehy. We will be back here in the Pavilion next Friday week, that's the 27th, for a programme featuring the RTE short story competition that Claire Keegan won back in 2007 for a story about horses, dark horses. Uh, we will, the shortlist uh, winners will be all with us. If there's half a good an audience as you were this evening, we will have another great night. And if any of them are even a quarter as good or a tenth as good a writer as Claire Keegan has proven to be, we will be very lucky people indeed. Thank you for your time this evening. John Creedon will be with you after the news.